Hi there, and welcome to the Powerhouse Politics Podcast from ABC News. I am ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. And I'm ABC News Deputy Political Director Shoshana Walsh. And before we get going, just want to remind you to leave us a review if you're listening on iTunes. It helps us move up in the rankings. We love the feedback. We are also now on Google Play Music, so Android users, please find us there and subscribe. You can also find us on Stitcher Radio, and you can find other ABC News podcasts at abcnewspodcast.com. So let's get to it, Shush. This week, we are going to visit with Ken McKay, a Republican strategist who was Chris Christie's campaign manager, now heavily involved in the Donald Trump super PAC, Rebuilding America Now. Plus, we are going to check in with the Green Party presidential candidate, Jill Stein, talk about what she is up to in her second bid for the presidency. Uh, but just let's let's look at the big picture. This might be remembered as the week where Donald Trump turned things around, unless it isn't, of course. But it started off with that trip to the golf course, the much maligned trip. But by the end of the week, he was back to kind of normal campaign behavior, giving speeches, uh, hitting back on the big issues like trade, uh, like immigration that powered his rise from the start. He seemed relentlessly on message. And if you squinted, shush, it almost seemed like a regular candidate for president. Almost. And it's funny. It seems like every week on this campaign is a month. It's hard to believe that Scotland was only a week ago. But it's been a good week for him because even though he started talking about those sweets uh, on the golf course, that Brexit result uh, was g- good news for him. We don't know globally if it's good news, but it was good news for Donald Trump. And then fast forward to the end of the week, he's given two speeches on trade. He uh, is using the teleprompter like his supporters want him to uh, and seems to be more on message than we've ever seen him. Yeah, I think that's right. And now he's even talking about a more conventional convention. Uh, he's not going to be speaking every night, he, he tells the New York Times, despite some of the suggestions that are out there. Um, we're not going to see Mike Tyson or Mike Ditka, despite some reporting that was out there. We're not going to some, although maybe some other sports stars that are part of it. Um, and, and they're starting to do what you'd expect in the Veep Stakes, uh, appearing alongside uh, some folks who might be his vice president, uh, his, his running mate, uh, doing the more expected things and finding a groove, it seems to me, back on that trade issue against Hillary Clinton. It seems like that is a comfortable territory in the wake of Brexit to talk about the sentiments that, that, that really brought him to prominence in the first place. Right. And this is an issue that he's been quite um, – he's talked about throughout the campaign even before. Uh, it's an issue that he wants to get those white working class voters that already support him. That's going to help with that. But also uh, to try to woo over those Bernie Sanders supporters that don't like Hillary Clinton, that are still looking around. And maybe they don't like some of the the things that come out of Donald Trump's mouth. But this issue trade is critical for them. And that is exactly why you saw Donald Trump do not one, but two speeches with a teleprompter on trade this week. Teleprompters, my goodness. And then He gets a campaign issue handed to him, just falling right in his lap, courtesy of the big dog, Bill Clinton, who earlier this week held a, uh, you called it a meeting, a visit, some kind of a get-together. She chatted, he chatted privately for about 20, 30 minutes with Loretta Lynch, the attorney general. The two happened to be at the same airport, at the same tarmac at the same time. Uh, They're saying it was a social call, but man, shush, I can't find 
anyone who is defending this as a good idea for the idea for the the former president whose wife is, of course, under FBI investigation, the State Department investigation about the handling of her email. This active investigation that we we think is getting to its end stages for the husband of the subject of that or someone at the center of that to have any kind of private audience with the attorney general. Highly inappropriate and, uh, and, and at the very least, extraordinarily bad judgment for all involved. Right. And just an unforced error. Of course, Republicans and uh, this has really taken the Internet by storm. Uh, Republicans are so upset about this, so angry about this. But look at Democrats. They're upset about it, too, because this is an unnecessary error, unforced error. And it gives ammo to Republicans and Donald Trump when it didn't even need to happen in the first place. Just really an unnecessary headline over a conversation that never needed to happen. Uh, but of course, it, it has. And now uh, the reverberations are are they're going both sides are going to have to deal with it and even if you take it at face value and you you agree with right. them and you you say yes it was purely social they talked about golf and their grandkids they could talk about that in january or, or after the election or after the investigation and no or they could talk about it with anybody else that, that right. were traveling That's with right. them it was just completely unnecessary someone had to say no and of course donald trump is using this as a campaign issue i think in a relatively savvy way it's not just that he's saying it's a bad idea horrible for this meeting to have happened he's also saying this Look, this shows people the fixes in that that's about the Trump appeal, that the, the idea that the, the political system is rigged against uh, regular people. The, no, you know, no other person would get that kind of audience with the attorney general who's under investigation or who's had a spouse under investigation. That is not how it would work. It seems like a wink and a nod. Again, even if this was purely social, it doesn't make it right. And, and they right. should have had people around them who said, you know, you can't let this happen. Definitely, even though it may be hard to, to stop, uh, you know, a former president from from having a conversation he wants to have. But, you know, it really just plays into uh, what we're seeing in, in our polls, those trustworthy number, worthiness numbers for Hillary Clinton. This storyline plays into that and that the rules don't apply to the Clintons, which, of course, uh, a lot of Republicans and a lot of Democrats that don't like the, the Clintons believe this storyline plays into both of those. You're right. And you can't say no to Bill Clinton. And, and it is an example of the double edged sword that always is Bill Clinton out there. He is such an enormously valuable ally. But at the moment's notice, he can do something that is so ill advised that it takes you off message. And, it, and, and it, this is now going to cloud the end stages of this investigation. Even if they find nothing, people are going to ask these questions. Uh, and there's really nothing that the attorney general can do to answer them once this meeting has happened. It is entered. The, the sphere. But let's turn shush to the veep stakes because we saw Hillary Clinton early in the week campaigning alongside Elizabeth Warren. Man, they looked good together. Uh, and it was a, a good day for the Clinton campaign. You saw Elizabeth Warren. Uh, it was such a it, it was such a boost of momentum. Our reporters who were, who were out there, Cecilia Vega and Liz Kreutz, who covered the Clinton campaign, said they'd never seen as much energy at a Clinton campaign event as they did when Elizabeth Warren was there. Is this the ticket? I just don't see it. I, I think that, yes, it gives enthusiasm, and especially for the those Bernie Sanders supporters that maybe are just still standing on the the sidelines, uh, it, it helps them. But I just don't see a ticket with two women on it right now. Um, and I'm not saying that that's a good thing. I just think that that's really the facts. But I think what we did see um, on uh, on the stage with the two of them is that 
Elizabeth Warren is going to be very involved in this campaign. Whether she's on the ticket or not, she's going to be an attack dog in person, on the stage, on Twitter. She's good at it. She likes it. And I, I don't think even if she doesn't end up right there, you know, on the convention stage, I think that she's going to be very involved in this campaign. That's right. And I, I think I think you're probably seeing Hillary Clinton go with a more safe conventional choice. Uh, Tim Kaine, the senator from Virginia, is the name you see uh, popping up the most. And then on the Republican side, um, it, it does feel like Donald Trump is circling things a little bit, kind of finalizing that list, checking it twice, all of that. But two names have come back to the fore that are a little bit surprising, uh, at least at least to my mind. Uh, one of them is Chris Christie, who, of course, has been very involved in this campaign and been a loyal surrogate. Uh, he seemed to have faded for a while. The other is Newt Gingrich, who, you know, once he once he made those comments about the uh, the judge of Mexican heritage and, and t- talking, slapping down Donald Trump for his comments, you kind of thought he was fading, but he might be rising again. Right. And I think we have to look at uh, the relationships that these people have with Donald Trump, too. So look at Chris Christie. Uh, they seem to have a close relationship. They've known each other for a long time. Chris Christie likes to say how they've known each other for 14 years. And also, Rick, this is somebody that looks like he wants the job. Although I was thinking yesterday about the many, many times that Chris Christie has said that he would never be anybody's VP, that that's just not his style. I think that you're seeing uh, not just a possible vet here, but a relationship that they seem to get along. Now with Newt Gingrich, I also believe that. But before those comments that, that you that you just mentioned, uh, but it, you know he is somebody that can be an attack dog for the Clintons. He's had to deal with them and and, and been an opponent of theirs for a very long time. And I think that's why another reason why you're why you're seeing Gingrich as as up there on the possibles list. That's right. It's a great segue to our guest who we're going to talk to right after a quick break. We are going to check in with Ken McKay, who was campaign manager to Chris Christie, is now heavily involved in a pro Donald Trump super. Hey, think fast. Hey, what's this? The solution for your pain. Lidocare Pain Patch? Yep, the only non-water-based patch on the market blocks pain for up to eight hours. So it gives me eight hours of pain relief and stays dry? That's right. It's patent-pending technology, so it really is one of a kind. It says here it's odor-free, ultra-flexible, dry, and light. The Lidocare Pain Patch from the makers of Blue Emu. For long-lasting relief, you can wear. Available at CVS. Hey, it's Rick Klein again. I just want to remind you about abcnewspodcast.com. We've gotten serious about podcasting here at ABC News. Lots new for you to subscribe to. You can find all of our shows at abcnewspodcast.com. We've got something for everyone. It's abcnewspodcast.com. Take a listen. Subscribe to the ones you like. Now, back to the show. And we're pleased to be joined on Powerhouse Politics by Ken McKay, who was campaign manager for Chris Christie, who's now involved uh, in the Rebuilding America Now Super PAC, a pro-Donald Trump Super PAC. Ken, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So let's talk with the, the, the state of affairs at the Super PAC. It's been about a month uh, since the, the Super PAC formed. There was an initial uh, report of, uh, of more than $20 million in pledged donations. How does it stand in terms of fundraising? There's been reports out there that uh, things have been lagging pretty badly. Well, I wouldn't say they're lagging badly. I think um, I, I think our commitments have actually, well, I know, our commitments have actually grown. Um, but it just takes a ton of time to go out and meet people face-to-face and show them what your plans are and your budget and talk about why, you know, why you need the money and, and what you're going to do um, to use it to affect the election. So 
it's uh, it's slow you know it's it's time consuming and and but keep in mind i the reason i don't think it's like lagging or bad is because we're building this from scratch so you know if you look at the democrat super PAC priorities usa it's paul begala they were up you know years ago um they have a, a financial infrastructure in place a staff in place they've been meeting people year after year after year and they were going to support the democrat nominee no matter who it was right if if if, if you know, Joe Biden had gotten in the primary and won, it would be priority spending for Biden. If 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 Bernie won, they'd be spending for Bernie. Um, and by the way, if Hillary Clinton gets indicted and can't take the nomination for some reason, whoever ends up there is going to benefit from the work that Priorities USA has put into place to raise all that money. We, on the other hand, had, what, 16, 17 people in a primary. There were a number of different factions out there. Um and we didn't have the White House for the last eight years, so we didn't have that kind of infrastructure in Washington to start building and creating this to keep the executive branch in our hands. So, you know, you're, you're kind of uh, one day start and say, okay, go 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 compete with, you know, with this thing that's been up for years. So we're, and we're doing it. And at the end of the day, we will match them dollar for dollar. Uh, we're going to be fine. People are interested. Folks are, are, you know, folks do not want Hillary Clinton to be, president i mean you know if you look at the numbers on, on job creation and national security we're in a good position you know and she's having a tough time getting over 40 despite the fact that she's been around for for decades you know people right she should be over 50 if you, if you believe the if you believe the hype but can, uh, she's not can you really think dollar for dollar that that's possible yeah i think at the end of the day i mean what? not not right now but 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 when october rolls around I think that we will be spending at the rate that they're spending. What? Yeah. So they spend 150 million bucks. Do I think we'll get to 150 million dollars? I think if this election is close and this election stays close to the summer and goes into the fall, I think that we have a. I think people will see you're going to win this thing, and once the once once that becomes apparent, then we will be matching them. That's it, what I believe. It seems like you've got there's a couple of big obstacles here. I'm curious in, in your conversations with potential donors how this how these things kind of rank or they come into the conversation. First, you have a guy who very famously came in as a self-funder, said, I don't need uh, any outside money, and, and even disavowing particularly super PACs. Are you able to say that you have Donald Trump's blessing? And the other thing is, do you, do you feel like you have a willing participant in this. You have a guy who's putting together a kind of traditional campaign that a lot of your donors want to see, that the, a campaign that's built to actually win a general election. This PAC was established with, you know, trusted friends of the candidate. Um, I can't say we have anybody's blessing. Uh, you know, that's we're independent, and we make sure to, to walk a very, very, you know, kind of, not a fine line, but we, we walk on the side of legality. So I can't say we have anybody's blessing, and I wouldn't say that about anybody. But I know that this pact was created by people who Mr. Trump has years of professional experience with, relationships with, personal relationships with people who, you know, they raise their children together. And I know that they, you know, I, I, I believe that they trust us and they trust our judgment in what we're doing. Um, so, and I think people, as people see what this is really going to take, keep in mind a lot of the people who are, who are, you know, close friends of Mr. Trump's and in the real estate business and other businesses, they're not, they're not traditional, you know, major donors to conservative causes. And so they're coming at this and it takes a while to realize, hey, the other side has, you know, has already put, what, $8 million of negative ads against our candidate in, in May, I think. 
think somewhere between you know 15 and 18 in June. That does not include what Hillary's campaign is spending. And so, yeah, you know, he wants to fund his own thing. But this is the reality. This is how much money Democrats and liberals and, and public labor is going to pour into this election. And, you know, you've got a candidate who's out there. You know, he said, like, I, I go to rallies. I have these giant rallies. I get all this earned media. And, and so, you know, that, and that worked in the primary. And I agree that did work in the primary. But earned media versus paid media in swing states in, in, in you know, August, September, October is not going to get it done. And so it takes a while to explain that and get it across. But we're, we're going to be fine. People people see the polling. People see what's going on. This guy, you know, this guy's a place to shock the world. She, Hillary Clinton cannot get over 50 despite how well-known she is. She's untrustworthy. You know, the majority of people think she's corrupt. There was a poll out there recently. And and on jobs and on and creating jobs and on fighting ISIS, the two things that buoy the 70% unfavorable that, she, we are seen as winning by 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 ten points or more. Can obviously Donald Trump is a non traditional candidate, and one of the things that that he has uh, going for him that that we haven't seen before is that he himself is a billionaire. Are you finding with these donors that it's difficult for these rich rich donors to essentially give to somebody in their peer group? No. Not at all. I think that, that you don't hear a lot of that. People who want to win want to want to support the candidate. Um, people who don't want to give say all kinds of things. You know, they say, well, he's got his own money or you know, you, or, or whatever. I, you know, but, but look, you just keep on going. You keep on asking. You know what I mean? So you hear different reasons. But people who want to support him support him, regardless of what what you know where they are on the financial you know kind of stratosphere. Do you think the fundraising is harder because of the competing super PACs? Do you think that it would be easier if you had one main super PAC uh, like priorities? Obviously, you've said the advantages that priorities have. But um, but just in the idea that there's only one on that side, do you think that that would is a disadvantage that you have several? I think that I think some confusion early on about what to do um, was a factor. But I see that starting to to dry up. Frankly, you know, I think that people are seeing that, that, you know, we've been on the air, we've run a couple of ads, we, you know, pe- people are seeing other folks not, not doing things. And, you know, there's other packs that are saying they're going to focus on other things like the ground game, et cetera. And so I think, um, yeah, I think that was a factor in the beginning. And I think it's, uh, it's largely just dissipated. So let's talk for a moment about your old boss, Chris Christie, a lot of buzz around uh, about possible running mate status for him. Do you see it? Could you see a, a vice president, Chris Christie? You think it's real? You know, I just, if I, I have to be honest with you. I'll give you my personal opinion. Yeah. I think I, there's a couple things that people don't know about Chris Christie. One is how smart he is. You, you, I worked with him at the Republican Governors Association. We had 38 races over two years. You know, we had to sp- we, we we raised and spent somewhere around one hundred and you know fifty million dollars over that time. We you know that's in that keep in mind that was probably over twenty two twenty three states that were every state has its own unique uh, financial regulatory structure, right? Campaign finance structure. So you're not done. You're not regulated by the FEC. So so you have different rules, different types of money you can get in different types of states. You have all these different packs. You have different polling. You have different amounts of cash on hand, state by state. You're constantly trying to evaluate where do you need to put money? How can you move money? What's legal? What's not? And he would be he he would be on the road raising money all the time. Incredibly hard worker. Just never stop. Never stop. And 
cell phone, and it was like he built the spreadsheet with you. I mean, he can devour huge pieces of information and, and, and just, like, understand them and, 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 and make really, really incisive, you know, thoughtful decisions. So, so one, he's brilliant. Two, he really cares about people who work for him. Like, if you have a problem, he calls you at home. Hey, how's everything going? Are you all right? Do you need anything? He, you know, and then after the campaign's over, he calls you. Hey, how's everything going? Can I help you? He's just a real gentleman, and so he, so I think that he would be a fantastic leader. Um, I mean, obviously, I thought he ought to be president, right? I, I managed his campaign, but um, with respect to the inside of the Trump campaign, I have no idea, and I don't talk to him about it. And, you know, I just, I, I don't have any idea what the likelihood of that is, but I think he'd be great. Kent, this is somebody obviously you know really well. Do you think that he would want the job? He's talked a lot in the past about how he wouldn't want to be vice president. He wouldn't want to be somebody's number two. So do you think now it's different that he would want to do it? I don't know. That's a good question. I never thought of that. Um, I really don't know. I think he'd do whatever he can to help his friend. You know what I mean? Donald Trump, at the end of the day, they've had, they have a relationship that goes back. I mean, he's a, he's a thoughtful guy who cares about his friends. And so... I think if he thought it would help his friend, he'd, he'd try to help him. I'm curious, Ken, uh, what this, even this last month has been been like. I mean, you, you, you came over from the, the Christie camp, and you worked, uh, I think, briefly as a senior advisor to Trump. There's a there's a sense in the political world that I, I don't think I'm mischaracterizing that says that Donald Trump had a very rough road since he locked down the nomination, that he went into a bunch of self-created controversies. He was criticizing the, the heritage of a of a federal judge. Uh, he, he seemed to be veering into into, you know, kind of oddball territory a whole bunch of times. Is your sense that he has begun to turn things around, that he's begun to normalize? And are you seeing that in your in your fundraising numbers and your calls? I think that the race itself is, I don't think it's his behavior one way or the other. I think the race itself is starting to shape up and it's starting to become more defined. You know, because as I said, I think the race is becoming 70% wrong track. Who can alleviate your concerns over things like jobs and terror? It's one person versus one person. You know, it takes time to get away from the primary, right? People are still like, well, I still wish it was my guy. And, and, and it's not your guy, you know what I mean? So it takes time to to get it into a two-person race. And I think that has more to do with it than anything. And, and if I'm being honest, I think a lot of people, you know, the reason you haven't seen these numbers change all that much, right, the reason that this race is still, you know, within a few points in, in, in some of the most important states um, is because I don't think people believe a lot of what they hear about all these, you know, the things that the media has, has written about and commentators. You know, they, you got you got to fill hours of time on, on talk radio and hours of time on, on, on uh, the networks and the cable networks, I mean. And so a lot of the stuff I think people look through, I, I got to tell you, like the judge comment, I can't tell you how many people came up to me and say, I know, I, said to me, I know what he was saying. You know, he, he, he's pissed about a lawsuit that he's involved in and he doesn't think he's being treated fairly. I know what he's saying. So I don't think it's as much as people, as people make it. I think it's more about the races starting to get defined and sharpened into two people, one against one. So why tie Hillary Clinton, though, to Bill Clinton uh, in the, these ads? Because it, we, have, we, have, we have to remind people this is the same old same. Like, this is exactly what you're going to get. You've got parsing with him, and you're going to get parsing with her. This is what, it's, it's, there's nothing new here. And 70% of Americans think we're on the wrong track. The majority of voters think they want somebody who's going to change the way we do things in Washington. What are we going to get with Hillary Clinton? 
we're going to get him her saying, I did not send or receive any email marked as classified. Right. So she tries to parse this whole answer, which, by the way, turned out to be a lie. Well, that's what happened, you know, back in their previous administration. So she's out there saying you're going to get two of us. You know, it's going to be great for America. Well, we already had it. And we were tired of it then, and this this is what we're going to get now. So I mean, now Bill Clinton going to be with Loretta Lynch on the plane, and it's just it's just here we go again. And and so that's why we tied them together to remind everybody, hey, this is what it was like before. We'll get ready. All here right. it comes again. Ken McKay, Republican strategist, former campaign manager to Chris Christie, and now working with the Rebuilding America Now Super PAC. We appreciate you being with us. Thanks so much. Hey, thank you guys. I really appreciate you having me on. Our interview with Jill Stein coming up next. But first, I want to take a quick break to tell you about some of our other ABC News podcasts. If you're into meditation, or even if you're not, you can check out 10% Happier with Dan Harris. If you want to go in-depth on the news of the week, you can check out Perspective or World News This Week. There's a bunch of other ones, too. You can find them all at abcnewspodcast.com. Again, that's abcnewspodcast.com. All right, back to the show. And we're pleased to be joined now by Dr. Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate for president. Dr. Stein, thank you for joining us here on uh, on Powerhouse Politics. Well, thank you, Rick and Shush. It's great to be with you. Uh, great. So let's let's jump right in. A lot of attention being paid now to your platform, to your message, particularly in the wake of the Democratic primary season. What are you telling? What have you been saying to Bernie Sanders supporters when you come into contact with him? What's the message to a, a Bernie supporter who, who may be inclined to, to support Hillary Clinton now that the primaries are done? I think the message, you know, is that the struggle goes on. And after all the wonderful work that they have done lifting up this, um, you know, this, this fight for uh, economic justice and equality and an economy that works for everyday people and workers, that there's no need to send it back to the graveyard of the Democratic Party. Because at the end of the day, we've seen it's very hard to have a revolutionary campaign inside of a counter-revolutionary party. And what happened to Bernie has happened to principled, um, principled proponents of real change for decades, whether it's Dennis Kucinich or uh, Jesse Jackson or even Howard Dean as a peace candidate. They were all basically, you know, it was a, it was kind of a fake left move right uh, strategy on the part of the Democratic Party, which allowed these principal campaigns to be seen and heard for a little bit. But then at the end of the day, those campaigns were definitely sabotaged by the actions of the party. And we should note that you're in an airport right now calling us from the campaign trail right now in, in Kansas City. But uh, are you saying, in essence, that that. Bernie Sanders shouldn't have run in the Democratic primary or that the, the Democratic primary voters were being fooled to think this could happen through the, the traditional D versus R machinations? Uh, not at all. You know, I don't think that we would be in the position we're in right now as a public that's really been mobilized and that's been very inspired by the message of the Sanders campaign. And what we have now is the ability to keep it going. So, you know, as a member of a third party for quite some time, actually ever since the Democrats killed campaign finance reform in my home state, in your home state of Massachusetts, you know, I've been building and many of us, many of us have been building an alternative politics that basically believes the Sanders agenda and is here to support it. So we're not surprised to see the Democratic Party 
basically, um, you know, undermine the Sanders campaign. Uh, and that's why we're here to be able to continue that work. But there's no way we would have gotten here if it hadn't been for the work of, of Bernie Sanders and his campaign to really build the momentum and I think really lift the curtain on how very strong this movement is for deep change uh, across America. Dr. Stein, Joe Biden said this week that Bernie Sanders is going to endorse Hillary Clinton. Uh, does that are you disappointed by that? Uh, does it change the way you feel about him that you that you're just talking about? Um, not at all. You know, Bernie has said from the beginning that he expected not only to endorse but to work for the nominee of the Democratic Party. And Bernie is a man of his word. Uh, he's a team player. I may happen to think he's on the wrong team, but you know he is a man of his word. So this is exactly what we've expected. We wanted to open doors to Bernie as well as to his supporters. Uh, you know, and we continue to do that. But what we have really expected all along is for Bernie to do, as he said. But I think, you know, many of Bernie's supporters do not have his lifelong allegiance, or at least his decades-long allegiance to the Democratic Party. Um, you know, Bernie and many people of his generation really see the Democratic Party as the New Deal Party. But for quite some time, it hasn't been the New Deal Party. It's kind of the raw deal party. And that's not to say there are no differences between Democrats and Republicans. There are, but those differences are not enough to save your job, to save your life, or to save the planet. And so many of Bernie's supporters are looking at the future. They're not looking at the past. And for them, under this race to the bottom between the, the greater evil and the lesser evil, uh, it's not looking good at all. So I'm really just delighted and excited that there are so many visionary people who are ready to break away kind of the chains of the past and stand up for the future that we need. Dr. Steiner, I'm sure you've seen that some Democrats are saying that you and Gary Johnson, who's a libertarian candidate, could be spoilers for Hillary Clinton. I even saw that Cher was tweeting that. What's your reaction to it, to the whole spoiler narrative? You know, I think we're in a different age now than we were uh, at the time of Bush, Nader, Gore. It just so happens that the majority of voters now agrees with us that the system is terribly spoiled and it's spoiling our lives. And, uh, you know, this politics of fear has told us uh, that we had to vote against what you were afraid of rather than for what you believe. But that strategy now has a track record of the last 15 years or so. And unfortunately, this politics of fear delivered all the things we were afraid of, all the reasons you were told you had to vote for the lesser evil because you didn't want the massive bailouts of Wall Street and the offshoring of our jobs, and the meltdown of the climate, and the endless wars, the attack on immigrants and our civil liberties, and on and on. That's exactly what we've gotten because we allowed ourselves to be silenced and for the debate to be conducted between a greater and lesser evil who are not accountable at the end of the day to everyday people. They're accountable to their big donors, that is, predatory banks, fossil fuel giants, war profiteers, the insurance industry, you know, the usual funders of both the Democratic and Republican parties. So, you know, we're saying forget the lesser evil. It's time to fight for the greater good, like our lives depend on it, because they do. 
Dr. Stein, we at the ABC News Washington Post poll asked uh, your name in our, our latest poll, in addition to, to Gary Johnson, 3% support uh, nationally. As you know, the Commission on Presidential Debates has a threshold of 15% to get on the debate stage. What are you planning to do to get that message to that broader audience? To, to Do you think you can get to that 15% threshold? And if you don't, what, what do you plan to do about it? Well, first of all, um, the Libertarians and the Greens have both filed two court cases, uh, basically suing the Commission on Presidential Debates, which is a private corporation run by the Democratic and Republican parties. So it is not a public interest institution like its name might suggest. And in fact, the American people deserve not only the right to vote, but we deserve the right to know who we can vote for. And that's what a debate commission ought to be doing. So we've sued to basically open up the debates. And in my view, the rule should be that if a candidate is on enough ballots that they could actually win the election and they are a realistic and credible choice for being on the ballot for the majority of voters, then voters deserve to know about that candidate. If that rule was applied, there would be Gary Johnson and myself in addition to the Democrats and Republicans. This is what voters are clamoring for. And in fact, that 3% support is predicated on a 12% approximately of the public that actually knows enough about our campaign to form an opinion. And there are many polls that show us as high as 7%. And I'd say the majority recently are between 5 and 7%. So our numbers are definitely coming up even before we have had really any coverage uh, whatsoever by mainstream media our numbers basically tripled in the polls over the course of a month. There are 43 million young people who are locked into student loan debt with no way out. My campaign is the only solution. We call for bailing out the students like we bailed out Wall Street uh, not so many years ago. Uh, if we could do that for the crooks on Wall Street, we can do it for their victims. And if 43 million people learn that they actually have a way forward that will cancel their debt, uh, and so they, they can be full participants in society and the economy again, I think we're going to see those numbers begin to change. And this is a self-organizing demographic that is well-equipped to get that word out. So I'd say hold on to your hat and let's see where it goes. Dr. Stein, if, if you are able to get on that debate stage or if you're able to get more support, it is likely that it would come from the Democratic candidate, Hillary Clinton, and I just want to go back to, to what we just spoke about a little bit ago. How would you feel, Dr. Stein, if Donald Trump became president and you helped him statistically get there? No doubt. I will feel really terrible if Donald Trump becomes president. But I will also feel really terrible if Hillary Clinton becomes president. Because unfortunately, many of the really scary things that Donald Trump talks about Hillary Clinton, in fact, has already done. I hate to say it, but there's hardly a more disastrous war than Hillary Clinton led the charge for, that being Libya. Uh, the nuclear weapons um, uh, race, which is so terrifying and people don't want to trust to Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton has basically, you know, in advocating for a no-fly zone over Syria, 
that amounts to confronting another nuclear power uh, and risking the slippery slope to a nuclear war right now. Not to mention that the Democrats have just, you know, called for a trillion dollars in spending on the new nuclear weapons raise. So, you know, I think we're in a very serious situation now. Unfortunately, the lesser evil does not solve it. In fact, the lesser evil pretty much paves the way to the greater evil. It's not a solution. And in fact, if you look at the surge that's supporting Donald Trump right now, which really comes out of the incredible economic insecurity that people are dealing with and the great economic stress and despair, you know, it grows right out of the policies of the Clintons, that is NAFTA, which sent our jobs overseas, and the uh, deregulation of Wall Street, which created the crash, sending 9 million jobs up in smoke and depriving 5 million people of their homes that were basically stolen by the predatory banks to whom uh, Hillary Clinton has given all sorts of favors. So I think it's really important to face the music here. We don't have a quick fix. The lesser evil is not a fix to the greater evil. It is a race to the bottom. Again, it's time to forget the lesser evil because it's a propaganda campaign. It's a self-serving campaign on the part of political pundits and party operatives who maintain their convenient little niche through the Democratic Party. It's time to reject the lesser evil and fight for the greater good like our lives depend on it in this election. We are not only um, deciding what kind of world we will be, but whether we will be a world at all or not. If you look at the nuclear weapons race, the climate crisis, which again has gone ballistic under Democrats, even with two houses of Congress, we got a all of the above policy, which was actually disastrous for fossil fuel production. Uh, if you look at the um, massive continuing expansion of these wars on terror, which only create more terror. And in fact, John Brennan himself said as much uh, earlier this week in acknowledging that despite all we've done, ISIS is in fact even worse than al-Qaeda. Um, you know, this is a very serious situation we're in. It's time for us to change course, to do the principal things, not for the big donors of the uh, political, you know, uh, politicians who, uh, who are part of business as usual. It's really time for us to stand up for a politics that's of, by, and for the people. When we stand up together, knowing there are 43 million people in debt, let alone 25 million Latinos who vote and who've learned that the Republicans may be the party of fear-mongering and hate, but the Democrats have been the party of deportation and night raids and detentions. So there's a lot of votes out there, and we see it in the polls that people are clamoring for something else. So we're saying it's not time to split the vote. It's time to flip the vote and to really stand up for the transformative change that really is within our reach. Dr. Stein, before we let you go, I wanted to ask you about the, the Brexit vote last week. You put out a yeah. statement uh, calling it a victory for those who believe in the right of self-determination, uh, revolt against the rigged economy, the rigged political system that created it. This, of course, puts you in line with Donald Trump in, in, in applauding this. But are, do you think that's what was behind it? There was a lot of ugly things that came out as a result of that and through that process that, 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 that I think colored the results and the outcome. I'm curious your take on this and, and what its applicability for the United States should be. I completely agree. And while the first statement, the first sentence in our statement 
which was really an analysis. It was intended to be an analysis rather than an approval or an agreement with the decision. You know, I think the decision is is regrettable, but there were real, um, you know, there were real grave concerns uh, and real uh, discontent that that decision reflected. So, you know, I agree completely. I think on one hand, the decision reflected the impact of austerity and the um, the hardship, the economic hardship under austerity and under these corporate trade deals, which are great for big businesses and banks, but have been very hard on workers all over the world, actually, with financialization and globalization. It was a rejection of those policies of neoliberalism, maybe not knowing particularly what the word means, but being extremely resentful of the prevailing economic order. Uh, but at the same time, you know, that austerity breeds scapegoating, uh, just like it has here in this country. And it breeds a very dangerous anti-immigrant sentiment. And that was certainly part of what drove the victory. Another part of what drove the vet Brexit was that too many young people stayed home. You know, it was only something like 40 percent of young people who came out to vote. And had a few more come out to vote, probably the Brexit would have been defeated. So, you know, I think that the main point here is that uh, the European Union, like the United States, we all need governments that are more democratic and responsible, that are more socially just, and that are more ecologically sustainable. All right, Dr. Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate for president of the United States. Thanks so much for being here on Powerhouse Politics. Great talking with you. So, Shush, this has been anything but a conventional year. We've said it over and over again throughout. But I wonder if we're beginning to enter a more conventional phase. We have, of course, the conventions coming up in a couple of weeks. We also have the Veep stakes hot and heavy right now. And it seems to me like this would be a critical time for Donald Trump. You hear from Ken McKay about their fundraising. He thinks they can still get back on track. But the fact that they're still dark um, from the campaign perspective uh, going this late, uh, it wouldn't seem like they have that much time to make up ground. Right. And I mean, you mentioned that the, the campaign is still dark. It is really almost unbelievable when you compare the two. Uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign has an eight-figure buy in eight battleground states. Donald Trump's advertising, zero dollars. No television ads, no general election TV ads in any states. And it looks now like it may not happen until after the convention. The super PACs, I mean, you almost can't even compare the two uh, because Priorities has such a huge amount of ad reservations out there and ads already on the air in those battleground states. The disparity, I mean, it's really stunning. It is. And I think another factor in all of this is the the Republican Party, the need to coalesce, because it has to happen for uh, for Donald Trump before the convention, functionally speaking. We're going to see a pretty extraordinary sight next week. Um, that it's literally something that cannot be replicated by, by Donald Trump, which is that Hillary Clinton will be campaigning early in the week alongside Barack Obama and late in the week alongside Joe Biden. Of course, we just had the Elizabeth Warren event. We're still waiting on a Bernie Sanders endorsement. But this is just a glimpse of the powerful surrogate army that the Democrats will have at their disposal. Contrast that with the Republicans. I mean, who can Donald Trump campaign with? What kind of superstars does he have on his bench other than Chris Christie? It gets really thin, really fast. The the just about all of the the, the sixteen rivals, save Christie, uh, don't support him, uh, or or being quiet in their support. You'll have a little bit from Ben Carson, but you just don't have all of this this deep Republican bench. They're going to stay on the bench when it comes to Donald Trump unless he's able to turn something around. 
Absolutely. If you compare the two about who's going to show up at the convention, you have uh, two, possibly three former presidents. Uh, You have a very popular first lady, uh, the vice president. They'll all likely take the stage. Of course, there's Elizabeth Warren, maybe even Bernie Sanders, too. Uh, But the Republicans, who wants to talk uh, about Donald Trump at the convention? Usually people are dying to get there up there on the stage. And and these are, of course, speeches that can make a career, but you really don't see anyone clamoring. You mentioned some people, Sarah Palin may also be up there. Uh, And also, let's talk celebrities. I mean, Hmm. there are an absolute ton of celebrities that campaign with Hillary Clinton across the country, and you're likely to see them at the convention. Uh, For Donald Trump, yes, we've talked this week about the possibility of sports stars, but we're hearing that uh, Mike Tyson will not be there, that Mike Ditka didn't even know about it. (laughs) So uh, it's really uh, hard to compare. We're trying to compare money. We're trying to compare celebrities. We're trying to compare surrogates, and the comparisons are are difficult. And then you look at X Factors, and and I think the the things that are looming, the, the big thing, I should say, singular, that's looming over the Clinton campaign, this harsh reminder of that for them in the in the email investigation. They finally got past Benghazi. Oh, that report came out, and it, it mostly uh, harmless for Hillary Clinton. It didn't add much to the narrative about herself, despite a lot of political energy there. But the email investigation is still out there, and the Loretta Lynch meeting just hammers the point home. Uh, that uh, that that it is an un- it, it, uh, an uncontrollable piece of this, and of course the Justice Department not under any obligation to do this under any time frame. The expectation has long been to be done at some point before the conventions, but that may not hold either. And now there's going to be a cloud over that. And I, I think Ken McKay is right that every time you see these headlines emerge, it reminds Republican voters of the stakes. And even if they don't like Donald Trump, there's a a uniting force that an anti-Clinton storyline uh, seems to have every time. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned those uh, Republican voters or independent voters that may not like Donald Trump. But when you talk to them, you hear about the email scandal. You hear about Benghazi. They don't even really care what the headlines say, but it's that those storylines are out there and they just and and they cloud. They they help to to encourage that storyline that Hillary Clinton is untrustworthy, that the Clintons are untrustworthy, that they play by their own rules. And I think that is really what's on Donald Trump's side. Yes, there are voters that don't like what comes out of his mouth, but they don't like uh, how they perceive the Clintons as being able to to define their own rules, write their own rules. And in a campaign that could come down to an unpopularity contest, how much you get reminded of these things could be critical. And we've seen it in our, in our polling. We saw a big gap in our latest ABC News Washington Post poll, a 12-point gap, which is a little bit wider than other recent polls have had it for Hillary Clinton. But so many trouble signs continuing out there for the Clinton side of things that there's no sense that it's locked away, that the battleground states will still be close. And I think, again, to go back to something Ken McKay said, a lot of money spent out there. Uh, still, some angst on the left, as we as we hear about continually. A lot of money that, that that's that's that, that's attracted to the idea that uh, that this could be still be competitive. And for all the advantages that Hillary Clinton would seem to have, she's not running away with it. Absolutely. You mentioned those battleground states. All the polling that we see is essentially tied in those states, or almost all that we're seeing. And so when you look at at the numbers that we were just talking about, the, the financial disparity, the fact is that Donald Trump is still very much uh, competitive in all of these critical states. And that in itself is astonishing. 
That'll do it for this week's edition of Powerhouse Politics. Please take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, write a review, tell us what you think. If you like the podcast, tell your friends about it. You can tweet us questions, comments, use the hashtag PowerhousePolitics. And don't forget, you can check out a bunch more ABC News podcasts by going to abcnewspodcast.com. For Shoshana Walsh, I'm ABC's Rick Klein, and we will talk to you next week.